turn to the Gospel according to Mark. We're in chapter 15 today. And uh, in many ways, these are challenging uh, sermons because the subject matter is quite difficult. And even though this, in many ways, what we find in Mark chapter 15 and 16 is the heart of the Christian story of Jesus, these are the events that gave birth to what we call the Christian church. At the same time, they are hard to get through, aren't they? As central as they are, I don't know about you, but I don't find myself going back to them over and over again throughout a year. Maybe in my imagination, but not in my reading. And I think it's because it's a hard space to inhabit, the space of the cross. The space in which Jesus is crucified. The space in which His people have rejected Him. And they're mocking Him. And the Romans are mocking Him. And the world that He's dying to save, according to Christian testimony, is a world that has wholesale rejected his offer. That's a tough space. And yet we have found ourselves, because I'm such a slow preacher, living in it for a number of weeks, and there'll still be more weeks as we move towards uh, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. We're in Mark chapter 15 today, beginning in verse 21. Jesus has already been condemned as a blasphemer by his uh, own Jewish community. Pilate has handed him over to be crucified. He's been flogged. He's been mocked by at least 300 soldiers, maybe 600. And now uh, they are leading him uh, to the cross for his crucifixion. If you're able to do this, I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. This is Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 21. I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. They compelled a passerby who was coming in from the country to carry his cross. It was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Then they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull or the place of a head in Greek. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his clothes among them, casting lots to decide what each should take. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two bandits, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, along with the scribes, were also mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross now so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also taunted him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. We invite you to be seated. There have been many sermons through the nearly 2,000 years of Christian history preached on this passage. Maybe more sermons preached on this one than any other one. And lots of angles that we can take in understanding what the cross was meant to do for us, what it was meant to reveal to us, and what it obscures from us. Today... I want to consider what it is that these short events of Jesus' life reveal about who God is. And the title of the sermon today is The Glory of God. Somehow God's glory is declared in Jesus as He dies on this cross. And it's quite unconventional. It's not what would be expected. 
Now, I'm the type of person, uh, you know that I like science fiction, but not just science fiction. I like science, just generally. I like learning, just generally. I'm sort of addicted to knowledge. And the things I like best about science fiction are the things that can ignite the imagination and encourage real scientific development. That's the stuff that really gets me going. And so I love to study the natural world. One of my favorite video series is called The Privileged Planet. Some of you have read it, and it talks about all of the small things that are necessary for life to have developed on Earth. It's the fine-tuning argument of intelligent design. And I do personally find that quite compelling. That, that if just the cosmic constants of the universe were off by a hair of a fraction, no life. If, if just our moon was a little smaller or a little bigger or a little further away from the planet, probably no life on earth. You know, just if we were in a more clouded and hazy section of the universe or our galaxy, we probably wouldn't be able to see the rest of the universe. So we're in a perfect position to view the cosmos. Like just all those little things, they, they make a lot of sense to me as I think about the likelihood that we live in a universe that was created by an intelligent, intentional being. And then when we take all of that and we bring it down to that morning that we celebrate on Resurrection Sunday when the tomb was empty and they experienced Jesus, 500 followers experienced Him over the course of 40 days alive. When I put all that together, I, I feel greatly encouraged that we're not just gathered in a room celebrating fairy tales. That we are talking about the God of all creation, who really is, who really was, and really will forever be. Who became flesh in the person of Jesus. Like, all of that is, is that's firm for me. Sometimes I doubt it, but the doubts aren't as loud as the confidence. But to say all of that is still to say almost nothing at all about who God is. I know, that might be shocking to hear, but it's true. We hardly have the capacity to comprehend or to explain a being of the immensity that our God is described to be in Christian Scripture. I was thinking about this uh, and then remembering an early church father who wrote in the 300s AD, his name was Gregory of Nazianzus, and in one of his theological orations he wrote these words. As to what concerns us, it is not only the peace of God which passes all understanding and knowledge, not only the things which God has stored up in promise for the righteous, which eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor mind conceived, except in a very small degree, nor the accurate knowledge of creation. For even of this I would have you know, that you have only a shadow when you hear the words, I will consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, and the settled order therein. Not as if he were considering them now, but as destined to do so hereafter." So Gregory begins by saying, there's more hidden in what God reveals to us than in anything that's revealed. That's what he's saying. But then he wants to move past all that revelation. And this is what he says about God himself. But far before them, all these physical things and the universe and all that, is that nature which is above them and out of which they spring, the incomprehensible and illimitable, not I mean as to the fact of his being, but to its nature. And here's the quotation from Gregory I want to think about this morning. For it is one thing to be persuaded of the existence of a thing, and quite another to know what it is. For it is one thing to be persuaded of the existence of a thing, 
and quite another to know what it is. In many ways, we could talk about the history of humanity on earth as an attempt to understand who our Creator is, what our source is, what our purpose is. And even though so much is revealed in the person of Jesus, there is more. Jesus is the tip of an iceberg that we cannot even fathom the depth of when we approach who God is. And yet somehow here on the cross, God breaks that veil that conceals Him from our limited human intellects. And in the person of Jesus and His experiences there, He begins to show us a little bit of who He is essentially. A little bit of His heart. A little bit of His character. Before this, Israel only knew what God had done. And they only knew the things He had told them. But they knew almost nothing about this God other than those peripheral things. How much can you know about someone when He just kind of interacts with you intermittently over a period of time? But here, Jesus begins to reveal to us what the glory of God is. And it is so confusing and so shocking and so unexpected that most of the people who stood there watching it happen had no idea at all what they were seeing. We're going to talk about that today. And I want to draw on nature again because I really do believe that the natural world helps to prepare us for some of the truths that are revealed to us in the gospel. So we have this moment with Jesus on the cross where he looks to be the weakest of all people, where he looks to be vulnerable. He doesn't look to have any control at all. And yet we're asked to believe by Mark that it's at this moment that he is most God, when he looks the least like God. Some of you know I wrote a book called When God Doesn't Look Like God. It explores this space. But nature too has moments like that. There's a jellyfish called the immortal jellyfish. Some of you have heard the story of this thing. It's, it's not very big. It's about the size of a fingernail. Tiny little jellyfish. It's made national news recently uh, because of what we're going to talk about in just a minute, but also because it's an invasive species and it's doing a lot of damage uh, ecologically to places in the world. But it's called the immortal jellyfish, not because it never dies, but because when it's severely injured, this jellyfish has the ability to turn back all the cells in its body to its juvenile state. It actually goes back to polyps, which is where jellyfish start, and then reproduces a whole family of jellyfish out of the same exact genetic material of the host. And so they call it the immortal jellyfish. It's called by National Geographic the Benjamin Button of the animal world because it can age in reverse. Scientists are studying it now. I read it in Scientific American two weeks ago. Uh, They're studying it to figure out if there's anything we can learn because our cells have the same capacity as the immortal jellyfish to re-differentiate. That's what stem cells are. That's what all the research is about. The ability of bone material to become heart material or cartilage or whatever else. Our cells can do that too. The point here is that right in creation itself is uh, an example of something that Jesus does viscerally in the real world as he turns back the time of decay. We're going to get back to that jellyfish at the end. Here's the summary statement I want to make today. Previously through the prophets of Israel, humanity had encountered God's presence. It had witnessed a number of God's activities in history. It had received commands, guidelines, and advices from God. And it had begun to understand some of what God wanted from us. However... Only in the person of Jesus did humanity have access to God with our senses in visceral, physical, material ways. And for Mark, no event in Jesus' life is more revelatory of the reality of who God is than these moments we've just read of Jesus on the cross.
This is when God's glory is revealed. So what does it reveal about God? That's our topic today. If God's glory is revealed in Jesus' crucifixion for us, then Mark has highlighted at least three aspects of Jesus' crucifixion that reveal who God is to us. And through this, help to make sense of the entire history that we've experienced as humans on earth. One of the powerful, powerful kind of arguments that Christianity is a truthful religion and not just made up of fairy tales is its ability to explain real human life in such powerful ways. <coughs> See if that's the case today. Three aspects of Jesus' crucifixion that reveal God to us. The first is this. The glory of God is mutuality. Community. The glory of God is mutuality. Look at verses 21 to 27. It's strange details Mark gives us here. They compelled a passerby who was coming in from the country to carry his cross. It was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And then after they brought Jesus to the cross, we're told in verse 27 that he wasn't crucified alone. With him, they crucified two bandits, one on his right and one on his left. Is it interesting to you that Mark wants us to be certain to know that Jesus did not get to the site of his crucifixion alone? All of his people had abandoned him, but he did not get to the site of his crucifixion by himself. We have no story of the solitary hero in Jesus, who endures everything he endures alone, who stands before insurmountable forces by strength of his own will, who marches himself up to the point of his execution. Socrates drinks the hemlock, pontificating the whole time, and then valiantly lays down his life. That's not the story Mark tells. Now, apparently the way Mark told the story, because Luke and Matthew tell it the same way, so bothered the Apostle John that he makes a correction in his gospel and he reminds us that Jesus did in fact carry his own cross. Apparently it really bothered John. Probably what that means or implies is that Simon didn't carry it for him, but rather helped him with it. And John wants to make sure that we know Jesus was involved in the carrying of that cross. I don't know why that got into John's craw the way it did. But Mark wants to emphasize the reality that Jesus needed help to get to Calvary. And not just divine help, human help. Simon of Cyrene, matter of fact, his children are mentioned here probably because they were known to the church to whom Mark was writing. There's a song that I used to sing to my kids as a lullaby because I just love the tune and I like the words and now I'm writing this sermon thinking, I don't know if I should have sung that to them. Maybe I gave them the wrong impression. But it came from a movie adaptation of the film Beowulf. It was the animated one. Some of you might have seen it. And the name of the song was A Hero Comes Home. But it is so different, this kind of hero described than Jesus, that I just want to read the lyrics. It says, I won't sing it. it says this. <laughs> Just wait, though wide he may roam, always a hero comes home. He knows of places unknown, but always a hero comes home. He goes where no one has gone, but always a hero comes home. He goes and comes back alone, but always a hero comes home. Just wait, though wide he may roam, always a hero comes home. Now that lyric, is, it, it probably captures my imagination because that's a story we've told of heroes all through human history. That the hero is the one who stands against that wave of enemy forces and fights the wave by strength of his own will or maybe a very small number of people. But that's not the story of Jesus. 
when the forces of evil overwhelm him at this moment, he doesn't fight back. He doesn't stop them. In fact, he doesn't even get to the site of his crucifixion by strength of his own back. But he partners with another human being who helps him to carry his cross. And this is the revelation of God to us. And I think if we have eyes to see, we'll recognize that this story we see here with Jesus partnering with Simon to get himself to Calvary is the story that we are told over and over and over again throughout the scriptures. God comes down and He gives law and guidelines. He rescues His people and He delivers them. And then God suddenly retreats and leaves human beings to make choices and decisions on their own. We've seen it over and over again in the Garden of Eden. God comes down, He creates that garden, He creates male and female, He creates the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He tells them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then He leaves them. He he goes someplace. And they're there alone in the garden with a serpent that wants them to eat of the tree, thinking about it. And He lets them make the decision to eat. With Cain and Abel, we don't even know if God told them how to make sacrifices, but somehow they had this desire to make sacrifices to God. They make sacrifices. Abel's sacrifice is pleasing to God. Cain's is not pleasing. God retreats. Cain's angry. God comes back and He says to Cain, you need to master this. Sin is trying to take you over. If you do what is right, you will be pleasing. So master this sin that's crouching at your tent flap. And then He leaves. And Cain goes out and murders his brother. And we say, well, why, was, why did God leave? Sodom and Gomorrah, the nation of Israel, the period of the judges, King David and all the kings afterwards, even in Jesus' own life with his own disciples, he comes and he casts out demons and he heals diseases. And then he sends out, you remember this sermon that we preached on this, he sends out his disciples to go do that ministry on their own, two by two. And he stays back and he lets them go. And then they come back and they report to him. Over and over and over again, God uses humans to accomplish his will. He partners with us. He cooperates. I don't know why he does that, but on the cross, I mean, it seems dumb to me to do it. I don't know about you, but you know, we, we oftentimes let him down. And yet on the cross again, the same story is told again. Jesus partners with a human to carry the cross to Golgotha. Is that an interesting detail that Mark gives us? I suspect he gave it to us because he wanted his audience to understand that we participate with Jesus in what he's trying to accomplish in the world. The glory of God is mutuality. If you have carried with you the idea that the ideal Christian stands alone and is a kind of a monad who worships God as an isolated hermit, listening to no one and relying on no one, We've failed to live into the story of Jesus. We're New Hampshire people, right? You're supposed to be able to take care of yourself. Right? You're supposed to be able to take care of your own stuff. You shouldn't have to rely on anybody. If you have to rely on anybody, that's weakness. That's not the gospel. Even Jesus had help carrying the cross. The glory of God is mutuality. Secondly, the glory of God is reticence. It's not a word we use that often, but I love this word. Reticence. It means not telling people everything they might need to know. Someone asks you a question, you give them some information, but not all the information. You hold stuff back. You're unlikely to give away too much. Reticent. New Englanders may not live into the gospel in that first one where we're supposed to be dependent on one another, but we really live into this one, right? We're reticent, right? But notice Jesus on the cross. Look at verse 29. 
Those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, along with the scribes, were also mocking him amongst themselves. Why doesn't he respond? You'd see, it would seem that the most important thing for Jesus to do right now is to explain the significance of the cross. Right? While he's on it, why doesn't he preach? Why doesn't he tell them what he's doing? I love, there's a Max Lucado, uh, um, it's not really, it's a song because it has some chorus, but it's mostly spoken. It's called This Blood. Some of you might have heard it. This blood is for you. And he has Jesus at every moment explaining what he's doing. Like the soldier carrying him, taking him to the cross. Some of Jesus' blood falls on his foot. And Lucado has Jesus saying to the soldier, this blood is for you. He has him up on the cross saying to the people who are watching him, this blood is for you. But that is so not the gospel. He doesn't say any of that. He says nothing at all. He lets them misinterpret him. Why? Why does Jesus silence Remain absolute. What does it reveal? Why does he not explain himself? Why does he not answer the objections? Why is he content to appear weak and vulnerable and even duplicitous? Because dying on the cross, he looks like a liar. He said he was of God, that he's the Messiah. If that's true, maybe a little rescue from the cross? I mean, Houdini could do it. Why is he content to appear that way? Well, here again, we begin to see who God is. And it's not a story that's new to us. If we read through the First Testament, we see it all over the place. God in Jesus and throughout history apparently does not appear to fear being misunderstood. He doesn't appear to fear being misjudged. He seems to be willing to let his actions speak for themselves. And he seems content to let his onlookers draw their own conclusions about him. We have to remember that for Jesus, this is not the end of the story. This is simply part of the story. And he is not one to give away too much of the ending before it occurs. It's actually a little early to come to any firm conclusions about what God is doing. And yet the people in the story, they do. They try to anticipate the end, right? Based on their present experiences. And you do it too. And so do I. Let's admit it. How many of us, if a story gets too intense and you're reading it in a book, turn to the end to see what happens? (laughs) How many of you sit there watching a movie and constantly harass the people you're watching it with trying to figure out how it's going to end before it does? Right? Oh, that's going to be the killer. I know some of you, some of you do that. That's the guy. I know that's the guy. I do it to Jen all the time. Like if I'm watching serial television shows on on TV and I see an actor I recognize in a crowd, I know he's the killer. You know, because only famous actors get those parts. And I'm like, oh, I know that guy in the crowd. He's going to be the killer. (laughs) We always want to anticipate based on where we are right now what the story is going to be, how it's going to turn out, how the final act is going to go. But one of my life verses, I've shared it with you before, is Proverbs chapter 25, verse 2. And it says this, It's the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings to search things out. It's the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. In many ways, history is a system of God concealing and humans uncovering what God has hidden for us to find. And the cross is similar to that. 
It reminds me of a passage from a very difficult book. It's called A Grief Observed. It was written by C.S. Lewis. In fact, he never intended it to be published. It was a story that he wrote out of his grief in losing his wife after a battle with cancer. And uh, he wrote it for himself, and it was published after he was dead. I don't know if he would have ever agreed with it being published, but I am glad that it was. There's a passage in that book. He had been a bachelor his entire life and finally found the love of his life in a woman named Joy Davidman. And only four years after they were married, she died of cancer. And he immediately began writing A Grief Observed as an attempt to work out the emotions he was feeling. This is part of what he wrote. Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you're happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing Him, so happy that you're tempted to feel His claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to Him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to Him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You might as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. And that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? He goes on to say, Not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God, the real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about Him. The conclusion I dread is not so there's no God after all, but instead, so this is what God's really like. Deceive yourself no longer. Now those of you who've studied C.S. Lewis's life, you know that he was a faithful man. But this is real and visceral experience of living in the dark and wondering where God is. This is the cross. This is the experience. I don't know the story of these people who were mocking Jesus, but I imagine that some of them probably followed Him. I mean, they knew some of His teachings. They knew He had talked about the destruction of the temple, which is something He had only said amongst a small group of followers. And so they knew some of this information. Maybe they're coming there hurt, saying, I thought you were going to deliver us. My life stinks. I thought you were going to heal us. I thought you were going to set us free. Here you are, dying on a cross. Prove yourself. We don't need God on the cross. We need God of the Exodus. We need God to come down and do the plagues and kick the Egyptians' butts. That's what we need. We don't need some God dying, weak and helpless. Save yourself and save us. But He doesn't. In fact, it was only by that death He could save them. But that wasn't the salvation they wanted. Jesus will not speak out of turn. In the middle of the story, he is hesitant, reticent to give out what is coming next. He lets us make our conclusions. He stays silent. And he says, wait for it. The glory of God is mutuality. He had help getting to the cross. The glory of God is reticence. God does not speak simply to answer human objections to the way the story is going. And finally, this morning, the glory of God is weakness. Look at verse 32. This is what the chief priests and the scribes say to him. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross now, so that we may see. 
and believe. Those who were crucified with him also taunted him. Humans are drawn to power. And this is also in the scriptures. Genesis tells us that from the earliest days of humanity, humans praised and followed conquerors. We have always been drawn to power. Now maybe that's a trace of our desire for God Himself, because honestly, who is more powerful than the God described in Scripture? So our desire to chase after power and might might be a hunger after God that we search in very human ways. That's possible. But... Whatever our reasons, our lust for power and security and protection and prosperity has shaped the world in which we live. Many of us will sacrifice almost anything just to be a little safer, a little healthier, a little more protected, a little in a little bit less pain. But the glory of God revealed in Jesus chooses another way. God is powerful. He seems to have the ability to do all these things that we hope and wish that He would for us. And yet what He reveals on the cross is that God's true strength is revealed not in those overt activities, but in His refusal to protect Himself from assaults that are far weaker than Him. However willing to judge and destroy and punish God may be, He seems to value humility, weakness, and vulnerability above all else. The glory of Jesus is in having a power He chooses not to exercise in His own defense. To read that into our lives, the glory of Jesus is in having the money to buy a thing and not buying it. The glory of Jesus is in having the strength to protect yourself and refusing to do so. The glory of Jesus and the glory of God is not in being powerless, but in refusing to use power as a means to your own glorification. God receives glory by not being God in this moment. By submitting Himself to being human. As vulnerable and as weak as we are. It's in that that He reveals His glory. Because most of us, if we could, would escape a moment like this one. We either pray for God to take us out of it, or we would find our own way to escape it, or we would try and get a group of other people to form some sort of a union and get us out of it. Our whole lives are designed to escape these moments. When you and I pray, we pray. And Jesus says it's okay for us to do that, that we not enter into these moments. When you and I save our money for retirement, it's because we don't want to die in a certain way that scares us to death, right? We spend our whole lives avoiding the cross. That's how we build our lives. We would think if we had the power and the resources of God, we would certainly, the first thing we would do is build walls big enough to keep our enemies out. The next thing we would do is purify the human genome so we could never get sick again. The third thing we would do is to make plenty of wealth for everybody. I would invent... Uh, um, uh, what, I'm a, how can I forget Star Trek terms? My goodness. <laughs> replicators. I'd create a replicator so that out of thin air I could make anything I wanted. Right? That's what we would do if we had the power of God. So why doesn't He do it? Because on the cross, God's glory is revealed in what He does not do. He refuses to protect himself 
And this struggles. It's hard for us, not because he did that to himself, but because he seems to do it to us. And that is frustrating to us. But it is so within his character. It's reminding me of an incident in one of the letters that Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote from prison. If you're not familiar with him, he was a German theologian during World War II. He was part of a resistance movement against the Nazis. The underground, the confessing church they were called. He wasn't directly involved in the assassination attempt on Adolf Hitler's life, but he was part of a group that tried to do that. And when it failed, they were all arrested and then eventually executed. And so he was arrested as part of that group, put in prison, and he wrote letters. And they were hard letters to read. Many have probably read The Cost of Discipleship. Fewer have read his epistles from prison. But here's a quotation from one of them. The linchpin is removed from the whole structure of Christianity to date. Our coming of age forces us to a true recognition of our situation vis-a-vis God. God is teaching us that we must live as men who can get along very well without Him. The God who is with us is the God who forsakes us. The God who makes us live in this world without using Him as a working hypothesis is the God before whom we are ever standing. Before God and with Him we live without God. God is weak and powerless in the world, and that's exactly the way, the only way in which He can be with us and help us. Matthew 8:17 makes it crystal clear that it's not by His omnipotence that Christ helps us, but by His weakness and suffering. Now, you have to recognize Bonhoeffer's in a tough place. He's going to be executed. He tried to end Adolf Hitler's tyranny. It did not work, and he's angry with God too, among other things. And people who love God get angry with him. And Bonhoeffer's angry, but he stumbles onto something that is true on the cross of Christ. That God most displays himself in weakness. That the God we want is a hero who rescues us, and he more often comes and dies with us. And when you're dying, you don't want God to die with you. You want God to rescue you. When I had cancer, I didn't pray for God to get cancer too. And to sit next to me in the chemo ward as I received my chemo today. I didn't want him there. I wanted him to heal me and take me out of that place. And yet we serve a God who comes and sits with us. Who dies with us. And that's what Bonhoeffer means. His experience in that prison cell was that God was saving him through not saving him. That God was transforming him by not fixing him. That God was setting him free by not rescuing him from his times. And he was wrestling with that. And he, he couldn't say it in any other way. I almost have to live as if there's no God, knowing that God's everywhere. I almost have to make my choices as though he's not going to help me, knowing that he could help me any time. That's Bonhoeffer's moment. Maybe you've been there too. Maybe it's not polite to say in church. Maybe hearing it from the pulpit makes you nervous. But we've been there, right? Those moments that we just don't know how this could be a moment God would want for me. And I'm not sure he does want it, but he does understand it. And in some ways, this is the world he's created. The glory of God is mutuality. Jesus has help getting to the cross. The glory of God is reticence. Jesus refuses to defend himself on the cross. And the glory of God is weakness. He saves us by not saving us. He saves us by not saving himself. He saves us by dying. That is not a story that makes any sense. And yet it upends the entire world. So here's the question I want to conclude with. How does Jesus save us on the cross? Why this road? 
Now, of course, the cross settles issues of forgiveness and redemption for us. And that's where we've really focused our conversation in recent years in the church. And that's still true. But there's something else that the cross delivers us from that we cannot forget. And Mark puts it in front of us. The cross saves us from our self-delusion that power can set us free. It's a good word to remember in election season. Early 20th century Scottish theologian P.T. Forsyth wrote a book called The Justification of God and he was writing in the middle of World War I. And he says this, because in his time, I'll give you a little setup. There were a lot of people who thought they knew better than God what God should do. They knew exactly what God should do in this situation. He wasn't doing it. And so they were criticizing God. Some of them were leaving God. Some of them were becoming atheists. Some of them were becoming agnostics in, in, in England at the time. Because, not because they didn't believe that there was a God, but because they didn't much like the choices he was making. They thought as human beings they were better suited to make choices than God himself. And so they were coming after God. They were setting up criteria, saying, if there really is a God, He would do this, 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 He would do this. And guess what? He's not doing this, and He's not doing this, and He's not doing this, and He's not doing this, so there's no God. And Forsyth is wrestling with that, because he's struggling with this idea that humans have any right to say what a God would do, or should do, or will do. And he writes these words. Where shall we get the idea of what is worthy of God? There can only be one source of such knowledge. It's the final account God gives of Himself. It's no expectation of ours, no presumption in us of what a God-like God would do. No imagination of a God projected from our need. God's account of Himself, of His way with man, and of the purpose He infuses into history, His account of His will on, a, on the scale and depth of the great convulsive judgments is in Christ and His cross, or it is nowhere. What he's saying there, and I'm going to keep going, is that we know exactly how God will be for us if we look at the cross. That Jesus has shown us how God operates in the world forever. It's in the cross, he goes on to say, which so many are disposed to treat as an incident or at most an object lesson, though one falsified by all the stern course of history. The cross of Christ, with its judgment grace, its tragic love, its grievous glory, its severe salvation, and its finished work is God's only self-justification in such a world. But is it not salvation full and free? Surely. Full of the passion which sets the soul free for himself. Free? It was of his own will. Hard? Yes. But hardest of all, for him. He took on himself there more than he ever inflicts. Let me say that again. He took on himself there more than he ever inflicts. And his infliction from us there, he turns into his redemption. The cross meant more change in God than in man. It was his own act of changing judgment into mercy. His own miracle. And its first concern was His holy love, not ours. On the cross, God takes the worst humanity can deal to Him, and He does not fight against it, and through it, He saves us all. That story will be replayed in your life and mine. There is no way to avoid it. 
we too will suffer and see ourselves saved by that suffering. We will find ourselves in the darkest moments, just like the onlookers on the cross, just like Jesus in His crucifixion, where we feel, Jesus says these words, we're going to talk about them next week, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where we feel abandoned by the Almighty. Where the, the veil is... Jesus walked into that. You're going to go there too. There's no avoiding it. This is how God operates. This is how He makes all things new. And what it allows for us to do, and I had a terrible time doing this when I, go into, when I went into cancer, and it certainly, when it comes back, as they assure me that one day it will, um, it'll be hard again. But somehow I have to believe that just like Jesus on the cross, it's in that moment that I will be saved. That it's through those events that I will be transformed. That to become like Jesus requires the space of the cross. And the hope that Christians have and the good news of the gospel is not that He will rescue you from Calvary, but that He will transform Calvary into your transformation. And you will become something more than you could ever be by having passed through the darkness you would have avoided if you could have chosen it. That's His promise. That He turns chaos into life. That's creation. It goes all the way back to Genesis. When God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and void. Darkness covered the surface of the deep. Right? The world was chaos. There was no life. And God took that chaos and He shaped it into the world that we know. Separating light from darkness and water from water and land from sea. And then filling the, the light and the darkness with the sun and the moon and the stars. And then filling the air with birds and the oceans with fish. And then filling the land with land creatures. He took chaos and he organized it into life. And if any of us think that there's some version of following God where we don't find ourselves where everything is darkness and deepness and water and chaos, then we don't know the first thing about following this God because that's the space he makes life out of. And if you want to live, you're going to have to enter it. And He shows us that at that moment of our deepest despair and our darkest fears, the moment where we feel the most vulnerable and the most powerless, the moment in which we want a rescuer and no Batman is coming and no Superman is swooping down, it's in that moment that we will be transformed into beings made in the image of God. The moment of our transformation and salvation is there in that place. If you avoid it, you will never know it. And He won't let you avoid it because it's the way God creates the world. And so we look back to the immortal jellyfish as I think a little confirmation built into the book of nature that God also wrote that the story He tells us in the gospel is true. Because when that jellyfish has a life-threatening injury and it looks like it's ended because they're fragile little things, its whole life starts over. Yours will too. All of us enter a darkness that we will not get out of apart from the resurrection of the dead. That's inevitable. But all of us enter other darknesses out of which God will resurrect us too. And we will always be stronger if we follow Him. We will always be more resilient to the darkness if we can give Him our faith in that moment. The church has tried to sell a story because it's appealing to the world. That God is a superhero who rescues His people from pain. But that's not the story of the cross. And I'm sure if you've read it, you've wondered how we ever got that idea by reading the cross. The story of the cross is that He can bring you out of whatever He leads you into. And if you follow Him in faith, 
then what the world thinks to be the darkest of moments for you will be the moment in which you are free. That's our faith. I hope you can trust Him. I hope the next time I do a better job of trusting Him than I did the first time. And Well, let's, let's just count them, right? Maybe the first 30 times. But we look to Jesus on that cross and we realize that through His refusal to save Himself, the world is saved. Don't justify sin to save yourself or anyone you love. Don't do it. It resists the whole story of the gospel. Save anybody you can, as long as you don't have to break faith with God to do it. Jesus asked for another way. I guarantee you if He could have avoided the cross without disobeying His Father, He would have done it. It's okay for you to do it too, but don't disobey God. Because there will come a time where the only way to be faithful is to cross right through that darkness you're trying to avoid, and you have to trust Him. This is where your new life lies. This is the space of transformation in the shadow of the cross. Would you stand? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this day. It's a hard word, but the road you walked is hard too. We are, we are thankful that whatever we must go through in life, you went through it first. That you never inflict anything on us. That you did not first and worst inflict on yourself. Heavenly Father, we pray that you can help us to believe you in the midst of that darkness. That transformation happens in this space. Help us, Heavenly Father, to believe that. Help us to believe that no matter how the events of our lives turn out, that if we can remain faithful through whatever they are, that we will become beings made in your image. That we will be free. We pray for those we love. We pray for our own strength. If there is a way out, we ask that you show us. If you would be willing to show mercy and rescue us from this moment, we would ask just like Jesus did. But if in your will you will not, help us to learn to accept the space in which we find ourselves the way Jesus did, believing that there is nothing that you cannot use to our betterment. We trust you. We can only trust you in that. Be with your people in Jesus' name. Amen.